If you are condemned, it is because you rejected him, not because he rejected you. He did not reject you. He sent his one and only son, his one and only begotten son, to die for you. That's how much he values you. What is the thing you value most? I want you to think about that as we dig into this chapter, and I have a story uh, that we'll get to quickly. But let's start in Romans 8, verse 31. It says, what then shall we say to these things? Well, that's an odd place to start for tonight because he's referencing everything he's written prior to this. So we're going to go over what we've been talking about thus far in the book of Romans so we can understand the context of what John or of what Paul is going to be writing to us from this point forward. So in Romans chapter 1, what Paul really points out is there's this natural law, this obvious existence of God. God brings himself, he puts himself out there through nature so that men are without excuse. It's obvious that the universe is designed. You know, one of the most famous scientists in the history of the world, Albert Einstein, said about the universe that the most incomprehensible thing about the universe is that it's comprehensible. That there are patterns and predictions and things that you can understand within the universe. It makes sense. Why does it make sense? Because it shows design. The world that we live in shows that there is a God, but there's also this moral law with inside of each of us that we act on and we also judge by. And because of this natural law and the existence of God, we're aware of this morality that exists objectively outside of ourselves and we are without excuse before a God. Yet, even though there is this morality, we tend to fail to live up to it. And Romans 1 goes through the ramifications of what happens to a nation when they fail to live up to the moral law and they suppress the truth of God. And then it goes into more of the moral argument in, in Romans chapter 2, where he's talking about this objective evidence for the moral standard. And yet we judge and hold others accountable to the moral law that we all know lives inside of us. Yet we judge others for failing to live up to this moral standard that we don't even live up to our own standard. And so we fail to live up to our own standard that we hold others accountable to. And then in Romans 3, he points out that, yeah, of course that's true, because all of us are sinners. All of us have failed. And if we failed to live up to even our own standard, how much farther is the gap between God's standard and how we've lived? And then in Romans 4, he helps us understand a little bit more that we are incapable of justifying ourselves before God because of that failure and the sin inside of us. And if we can't justify ourselves before God, what hope do we have? The hope that we have is faith because Abraham himself was justified by faith alone before the law was written. And so if faith is the key, Romans 5 tells us that faith in Christ gives us a substitute someone who paid the penalty or the fine or fee that we owe to God because of our sin. And so Christ's death can be a substitute for our death so that 
our punishment or our penalty for sin can be paid for, and that is achieved by the cross. And then it continues in Romans 6, and not only has the death of our old life and the death of our sin been paid for by Christ on the cross, but the resurrection provides new life for us, and we can be reborn. And new life can come because of the resurrection of Jesus. So the penalty for sin was paid for and dealt with, but the same power that rose Jesus from the grave now lives in you. And you can live in the power of the Holy Spirit because of the resurrection, and you can be given new life. And then in Romans 7, Paul takes a look within. And even though he's been rescued from his old life, even though sin has been put to death and he's been reborn and he's been given this new life, he looks within and looks within himself and he sees that the struggle of man still exists because even though we've been reborn, our bodies have not yet been glorified. And thus we, we are at war with the flesh and the spirit. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And when we look within, we find out that our flesh will still fail. But then we get to Romans 8. And even though our flesh is weak, the power of Christ is the thing that saves us. So in Romans chapter 7, he's looking within, but in Romans chapter 8, he's looking up. And it starts with, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Because even though when you look within, you might find failure because you will find sin still in this broken body. When you look up, you will see the Savior. And you are rescued from that sin and there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And so when he says in verse 31, what then shall we say to these things? That's what he's talking about, those things. And so what his conclusion is, after writing all of that is, if God is for us, who can be against us? Now, sometimes standing up behind a pulpit is a difficult thing to do because you're speaking truth. That's hard to hear. But tonight, it gets to be encouraging. Because think about that. After all of this problem that Paul has looked at, the issue of sin, in that we cannot get to God on our own, our flesh is weak, but Christ gives us the power to reconcile with God and be saved from our old life and death is put away. After all of that, the conclusion is, if God is for us, who can be against us? That is the most encouraging statement you might ever hear. If you have given your life to Christ, who can possibly defeat you? If God is for you, who can be against you? And that's why when we looked at Romans 7, we recognized the thing that you need to understand better is that you need to know your enemy because oftentimes the enemy lies within. It's the failure and the sin of the flesh instead of the relying on the Holy Spirit to guide us. The enemy often lies within, but if we instead of look within, we look up to the Savior, we can make it because if God is for us, who can be against us? So we've done one verse. You ready? To move on to the next one. Verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him, in, him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? This is where that question comes in. What do you value most? Now, I remember life as a bachelor, um, which 
lasted for quite a long time. I'll share with you some of that a little bit. You know, I got married when I was 30. Um, so I lived the first 30 years of my life as a bachelor. Now, after high school is really when that really begins because you have a lot of freedom, you're living on your own, or you have a roommate. And this is how my life kind of went. I had a roommate, and uh, we lived together for quite a while. Um, and life was basically just a goofy set of things that we decided to do whenever we wanted to do them. Um, and I remember every night my roommate would come home and he would say, hey, Steve, you want to go get a Baconator? And I said, no, thank you. Sometimes. Other times I said, of course I want a Baconator because I'm a bachelor who cares nothing about anything. I live by myself, and my body is a temple for Greece. <laughs> so we would just do whatever we wanted. We would play video games. I remember there were nights where, like weekends, where if we didn't have to work, we would play through uh, video games through the whole weekend, stay up, get energy drinks. It's an, it's an insane existence. Why do people live like that at all? I don't understand it anymore. Then, you know, as I grew up a little bit, mostly because my roommate got engaged, and so he started growing up, and then I had to. He moved out, and then I had to go live on my own for a while. Remember, I ended up in this house where uh, I thought it was a really good deal, but then winter came, and it was heated with natural gas, and I ended up going into severe debt to freeze to death. To keep my house at like 55 degrees cost me an arm and a leg. And I remember this winter of just the worst winter of my life. And I basically started thinking to myself what I was going to throw away or try to sell because I was looking to condense my belongings into what could fit into my car because I knew I couldn't sustain living there anymore. And then another friend of mine needed a roommate, so I ended up moving in with him, and it saved me from homelessness, basically. And this is how we lived. We set up our apartment with two recliners. That tells you how, how much of bachelors we are. We didn't care about anybody else sitting in our living room. There were two recliners with a mini fridge in between them <laughs> and two large screen TVs in front of each recliner with every video game system known to man hooked up. Uh, and we would just have like a ton of fun. Now, through all of this, this helped me save my problem with debt from the house that was costing me too much. Uh, but I still was living without responsibility. And so I didn't really pay anything off. I just could afford being in crippling debt at that point in time in my life. But then there was this girl who came along who I'm now married to. And all of a sudden, I had purpose, right? Because I knew that when we started dating, immediately there was this sense of, this is the one. I need to get my act together. And all of this ridiculous stuff that I had built around me, the video game systems, my guitar, my car, my credit card debt, all of that stuff started to matter because I loved something and valued something more than myself, which was at the time, my future wife, who is my wife now. And so when I realized she was the one, I realized I had to get myself out of debt. 
and I had to start saving for an engagement ring. So within six months, I had my credit card debt paid down and I had saved enough money for an engagement ring and we got engaged because I started to value something outside of myself. I started to value my wife. So my guitar went goodbye. My Nintendo 64 went goodbye. Like all of the crazy video game stuff and selfish things that I had purchased for just to have for fun or for my own selfish comfort started to not matter because I realized I wanted to build a future with somebody else. And something outside of me was more important than me. So the question is, what do you value the most? Because when I started to value something other than myself, I wasn't selfish anymore. The things that I surrounded myself with for comfort became actually a way for me to get free from my debt by selling them and getting rid of them. I loosed the chains of my old life so that I could set up my new life with this thing I valued more, my wife. Now, if you look at verse 32, it says, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall we not with him also freely give us all things? What that is telling you is the value that God has placed on you. Think about what he was willing to give up to have a relationship with you. That is way bigger deal than some credit card debt. That is a way bigger deal than just some things that are fun to have as a bachelor. What he gave up, his own son, he did not spare the life of his own son for you. If God is for you, who can be against you? What he went through, what he gave up to have a relationship with you shows you how valued you are by God. So who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies, verse 33. And so the first part of that verse is who? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? God's people. God died for these people. So who is able to bring charges against them? There is an accuser. That's his job. He's known as Lucifer or Satan. That's his job is to accuse you. But how can you be accused of anything if Christ's blood covers you? Because it is God who justifies. Christ's death justifies you before him. So no one can bring a charge against you because of what he gave up to have a relationship with you. Who is he who condemns? Well, who has the right to judge? God is the judge. God is the one who can condemn. Christ sits on the judgment throne, but it is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. So the one who gets to judge is the one who's praying for you and I. Do you get the good news in that? What God was willing to give up for you, Christ died for you, and he's the one who intercedes for you, and he sits on the judgment throne. 
the guilt that you think you live with, you can let it go because of how much God values you. And he's the one who sits on the judgment throne. And instead of condemning you, he intercedes for you if you have put your faith in Christ. Who, verse 35, shall separate us from the love of Christ? This is, it gets really good here. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, which just means trouble, Think about your life. Life isn't always easy. Life isn't always fun. Life is not always comfortable. Sometimes things happen we don't like or that make us upset or that make our bank account get scary low. Is that enough to separate you from the love of Christ? Think about what he gave up to have you. It's not. It's easy to get depressed. It's easy to let the weight of the world or the anxiety of the world weigh you down. Recognize the love of God, you cannot be separated from it just because you're going through a hard time. You're not guaranteed to have good times all the time, but you are guaranteed that nothing will separate the love of God from you. What about distress or persecution or famine or nakedness? Will anxiety or stress get in the way of the love of God? No. God's not going to love you, love you less because you're stressed out. God's not going to love you less because some people don't like that you share the truth. Persecution is not going to separate you from the love of God. If anything, it usually shows that you're acting in congruence with God's will. What about famine, starvation, or nakedness, peril, or sword? Will war or famine... Will any of that stop the love of God from getting to you? No, it won't. Because none of that is as big as what God gave up to have a relationship with you because of how much he values his relationship with you. If you are condemned, it is because you rejected him, not because he rejected you. He did not reject you. He sent his one and only son, his one and only begotten son, to die for you. That's how much he values you. If you are condemned, it's because you've rejected him. Verse 36, as it is written, For your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. The Christian life is not easy. It's not meant to be. Jesus promised us that in this world we would have trouble. Paul himself, who writes this letter to the Romans, was later beheaded in Rome because of his preaching of the resurrection of Jesus. All of the disciples and apostles, except for John, were tortured and killed to death. John was also tortured, but it didn't work, and so he ended up dying of old age because they preached the love of Christ and the resurrection and the power of the resurrection to a world that chose to worship Christ instead of the powers that be. And because they were changing hearts and minds away from the culture and away from the world and away from the government, the world turned on them and gave them difficulty. They were persecuted because of their faith. Verse 37, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So just because you're going through a difficult time 
or if the world hates you because you're telling the truth, or if you feel like you can't speak up because your neighbors are going to ostracize you, you don't have to feel like you're losing because the truth is, yet in all of these things, we are more than conquerors. I like the way that that's put because it's not just that we are victorious. We are more than victorious. We are more than conquerors through him, through Christ, who loved us. And it all comes back to that how much value you have. What was God willing to give up for you? God is the one in control, and he loves you that much. You are more than a conqueror from the troubles of this world because of how much he loved you and loves you. It actually re reminds me, it feels like this is an explanation of an earlier verse, Romans 8.28, which states, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. So those who follow God, those who are called to God's purpose and live that way, those who love God, all things work together for their good. It doesn't say all things work together for the comfort or for the ease, but for their good. So just because you might be going through a difficulty on the other side of it, you are more than conquerors because of him who loved you. And Paul ends chapter 8 with, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present or things to come. So already he's saying he's persuaded that death or life, angels, demons, or the powers of this world that are in control, nothing present nor the future is going to harm you. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. It doesn't mean that things won't be difficult, but nothing will separate you from the love of God. Why? Because of how much you are valued by him. What is worth more than anything else? It's like Jesus told a parable about this the pearl of great price. If you know this parable, I'm just going to paraphrase it for you. There's a man who finds out about this pearl in a field. And when he sees this pearl, he goes and sells everything that he has and gives up everything else in his life for the sake of owning this pearl. And Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like that. When you know the one who saved you, when you know the relationship you can have with God because of the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ, when you know the thing that is most valued, you are willing to give up everything else because that's the thing worth having. It's like when I met, when, met my wife and I knew all of this stuff that I had put around me for my own selfish desire or behavior or just to have fun when I had no responsibility, was no longer worth anything because the thing that was worth it was the relationship. And even more valuable than that is the relationship I can have with God because of what it does. It provides you no longer separation from the source of life, but reconciliation to it, meaning you get eternal life because of this relationship. 
There's a, a quote from a pastor I heard recently, uh, Pastor Mike Winger, who stated, you're not rewarded with heaven, you're rewarded in heaven. If you have come to faith in Christ, you're in. That's not the reward. You get other rewards in heaven based on how you lived your Christian life. So heaven is the baseline for having faith in Christ. Think about that. That's the pearl of great price. It's worth everything else. Giving it up for him. Because he was willing to give up everything for you. Now as we move into chapter 9, we're going to see some interesting things. Now chapter 9 through 11 really moves into Paul discussing Israel and what's going to happen with them because the early part of the church was exclusively filled with Jews, but the church started to expand and go beyond the Jewish culture and into the Gentiles, and it was expanding beyond them. In fact, the Gentiles were starting to outnumber the Jews in the church. And so Paul is dealing with this reality of the Messiah to the Jews, the people who had the scriptures and the understanding of who the Messiah was to come. It's their Messiah. They've rejected him. And even though the kingdom of God is growing, his people, whom the message was sent to, are failing to accept it. And he's dealing with this in chapters 9 through 11. What we're dealing in chapter 9 will be more of Israel's past. Chapter 10 will be more of Israel's present problem, as Paul is writing. And chapter 11 is the future solution to that problem. So we'll dig in through the first five verses. It says, I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. Now, as Paul looks outside of the gift that's been given to him through Christ, he's looking at the people he loves, the Jewish community. And as he looks at those who have rejected Christ, he's in severe pain emotionally because he recognizes there are people he loves who have rejected their Savior. He says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. He's saying, if only I could do what Jesus did. If I could, I would give my own life. I would give up my salvation for the sake of those who are not believing. If I could, I would, but I can't. Because there's only one who can atone for sin, and that's Jesus. You have to come in faith into faith of Jesus in order to be forgiven. Paul can't do it for you. He couldn't do it for his friends and his brothers and sisters. And it made him sad. Only Jesus saves. And that bothered him, not because it's not a good message, but because there were those rejecting Christ that he loved, and it hurt him in the heart. I think it should hurt us too. It should make us want to spread the gospel even more. Because... There are people who have rejected Christ. We know the truth. And it should hurt our hearts that they haven't accepted it. Verse 4, who are the Israelites to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises? He's listing off the people of Israel were chosen by God. 
They were given insight into the adoption into God's family. They were given the glory of God. Moses got to watch God walk by and see the glory of God. They were given the covenants, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant. They were given the law, the word of God, the Torah. They were given insight into God's plan and desires and moral authority and code. They were given the service of God, the duty of ministry and the sacrifices and the feasts to understand what God's plan was and what he was pursuing to do for mankind. They were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were given the promises and they failed to live up to it. And he says, of whom, speaking of the Jews, are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all eternity, blessed God. Amen. And he's saying, even Christ came from these people, yet they rejected him. And they were given all of this duty. They were given the law and the prophets, and they were, they were recording the words of God and sustaining the word of God and making copies of it to give to all mankind. And we have God's word because of the work of the Jewish people. But the problem is, knowing what God is going to do or fulfilling religious duty preparing the sacrifices or lighting the candles or kneeling at the right time, whatever the religious duty is, with the religious duty that the Jews fulfilled and the things that they knew and were given were not enough. Checking the task off the box and doing the thing, going to church because it's what you're supposed to do, kneeling in the right spot, praying at the right time, knowing when to say amen, all of that means nothing if you, have, if you don't have faith in Christ because knowing about Jesus or fulfilling religious duty does not save you. You are saved by grace through faith alone in Christ Jesus. And there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It doesn't say there is therefore no condemnation for those who perform religious duties. It doesn't say there is therefore no condemnation for those who have read the Bible. It doesn't say there is therefore no condemnation for those who have heard about Jesus. It is there, there is therefore no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus who have put faith in him. There is no condemnation. He gave up everything for you because he loved you and nothing can separate us from the love of God. Not tribulation, not trials, nothing can separate us from the love of God because the value he has placed on you to restore a relationship with you, to connect you back to the source of life. You are valued that heavily. Do you value God the same way? What do you value most? That's the question. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the words that you gave Paul to write. Thank you for the conviction in all of our hearts to understand what is it that we value most? What is to us the pearl of great price? It should be the kingdom of heaven. That's what you said it is. God, I pray that we look and understand what you gave up for us to have a relationship with us and that we see that as precious and hold on to it with all of our hearts. And not only that we hold on to it and are thankful and grateful for what you've given us, but recognize there's a world out there that we are heartbroken for because they don't know the truth or they don't believe the truth. And it's our duty to be your representatives and share it with them. God, I pray that you give us the courage, the strength, and creativity to reach them 
so that as many possible can be saved by grace through faith in Christ Jesus because the gospel is preached through this church. In Jesus' name, amen.